Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of A Life of Crime Writing with me, James Murphy. Today marks another of our special episodes um, in that we don't have a writer with us today. Rather than talking writing today, we're going to talk publishing. Um, and no better person than, than our guest today because with a, a, a background of almost 30 years experience as a literary agent, um, I think it's safe to say that our guest today has spent his life around books. Today we're joined by Simon Truon. Hi Simon. Hi there, good morning. Nice to, nice to hear your voice on uh, yeah, the end of another busy week, but you know, we're surviving aren't we? That's the key thing. We are, and of course, we are coming up to bank holiday weekend, which always makes it that wee bit more special on a Friday as well. So, Simon, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have, obviously, I've worked with you before, um, and we've talked on a number of occasions about how to go about getting an agent. Um, and... I think it's fair to say that, that that has been quite well covered by us in the past, but it's also been very well covered by yourself and Sam Blake over on writing.ie. So if it's okay with you, I'm not gonna to talk too much about that today, but I will direct our listeners over there um, because I have heard the, the, the sorry, watch the videos and, and listen to the audio um, and the, the advice over there is invaluable. Um, Good, thank you. I mean, so, I, what I'd say about that is, you know, ultimately, um, you know, I think good good advice. It doesn't matter how many times one repeats it; it's it's still good advice. So if you if we want to, I'm sure in the next hour, which I'm really looking forward to, we'll probably touch on all sorts of areas. So don't don't hold back. Oh, don't worry. I, my listeners will know that that's that's not in me. <laughs> Ask me anything. I believe is the phrase. AMA. Brilliant. Well, I suppose. Um, one of the first things before we get into the idea of publishing and agents and all, all the stuff that we that we want yep. to talk about, yep. um, I have to say on a personal note that from I first met you, you have been an invaluable help to me. Um, and the reason I say that is because you, um, I think you probably, for me, smashed a lot of the stereotypes of what an agent in my head was. Um, and, you know, from chatting to you and from looking at your um, website and, and, you know, hearing you talk about the agency, I really like what you do in terms of the ethos. So, as I mentioned earlier on, you're almost 30 years in into your, your career. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why 2019 you kind of changed tack a little bit and, and how and why? The Simon Truen Agency was born. Yeah, no, I mean that's uh, that is a that's a brilliant question, and uh, you know how how it was born. I often ask myself in in lockdown, you know, why was it born? You know, why why are any of us doing this at the moment? But actually, I think uh, it's it's a really interesting time for creativity. I spent, um, yeah, I mean, the both occasions you've said I've spent almost thirty years as an agent. I, part of me absolutely winces and I just think oh my goodness you know it's it's astonishing how life just whizzes by you know whether you're a writer or an agent but I think I feel I feel blessed to have found this um career and I feel blessed to have worked and continue to work with some astonishing uh, creative people but I mean I 
I mean, to answer the question, don't worry, I'm not going to go through every every one of the 30 years, but I mean, I was I was working, uh, initially I was working in the, the theatre world and that was a really fantastic time. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff in the West End and on tour and overseas, and and it was it was amazing, and it was an amazing creative time. And this was the kind of early '90s, and I got to work with some astonishing people, like you know, uh, I mean the the first the, the first West End experience I had was working alongside Harold Pinter, who I'd studied at university. So so I've had a kind of I've had an amazing time working with creative people, and then. Um, I met my wife who was an actress and we were doing a play together in the West End and we got together and our son came along a, a year later and I suddenly thought, you know what, I don't want to spend my life kind of touring around, seeing my new little family every now and again. I want to do something creative which keeps me in one place. And I had a, I had two, two kind of influences when I was growing up. My grandfather J.C. Trewin was a very distinguished uh, theatre historian, author and critic. So there was always the theatre and whenever we went to their house, it was always, the talk was always of what plays had been on that week or which actors were coming over or whatever. And my father was literary editor of the Times newspaper, you know, the London-based Times, and then um, became a really successful publisher and then went on to run the Man Booker Prize. So. I had these two massive influences. I grew up in a house full of books. And um, so when I decided to move away from theatre, I was, I was never going to become a chartered accountant or, you know, a landscape gardener. It was always going to be staying within my comfort zone. So I kind of went into the, the agenting world um, and I hadn't, didn't have a bloody clue what I was doing. Apologies now to anyone I was representing for about the first five years of my life because I really don't think I did a particularly good job. But I realized, um, I realized after about two years, I got an unsolicited manuscript in and started to read it and really, really loved it. And was talking to my dad about it over the weekend. And he said, you know what, I think, I think you, you're kind of getting what this job is now, aren't you? I mean, he didn't say finally, but I think that was a kind of unspoken. He said, you know, you found something you really love and you're talking to me about it. And you know, I'm a publisher and you're an agent. And on one level, that's what you do, isn't it? You just communicate enthusiasm to somebody who may then buy the book. And that was uh, an author I still look after today, and uh, Andrew Miller, and it was his debut novel, Ingenious Pain, which we had huge amount of success with. And Andrew, you know, he's been very loyal to me over the years, but you know, he's won, he won the Costa, he was shortlisted for the Man Booker, he won the Impact, you know, he's had, he's had and continues to have a great career. Anyway, I moved, I moved around from agency to agency and I finally went to uh, WME, which is the world's largest sort of global entertainment sports agency. I was a partner in the London office. It was a kind of crazy, amazing experience. Uh, and I, it enabled me to take all of the knowledge I had about the publishing world, all the knowledge I thought I had about the publishing world and kind of in a Google Earth way, kind of zoom out and see publishing, <clears throat> excuse me, see publishing in a kind of context of the entertainment world, film, TV, podcasts, all, all those kinds of things. And to see that actually 
if you're an author and you create you know ip intellectual property uh that that is one piece of a really big jigsaw and uh, it it was an amazing experience and i spent i spent six years there and i traveled a lot and it was you know i got to work with some astonishing you know kind of a-list celebrity clients who i didn't have to sign them they were already agency clients so i was told to go off and you know sell whatever it might be into into the uk market now you know that was a great experience because up until then every project i'd taken on they were kind of passion projects and things that i really believed in but when i was working there i realized i had skills that were transferable and i could take you know and sell oprah's cookbook or justin timberlake's autobiography or you know whatever it might be and you know i was just using using skills so that was a really good way it kind of honed a lot of my um it gave me a lot more confidence i think that what i could do actually was transferable it also enabled me to lose any sense of fear because when you're when you're walking into a room with you know are there our, our president who was a kind of you know billionaire self-made astonishing agent you you kind of don't have any fear frankly um but then then i got to the stage where i thought you know what and you know being very being very straightforward here um i thought actually what i'm kind of losing is i'm losing my i'm losing the time and ability to actually work just with authors that i really really believe in and i'm becoming a bit more of a door-to-door -door salesman and obviously look, you need a balance of the two so there was an opportunity two years ago and i thought you know what you know my life you know i mean in, in a crude basis you know we don't have a mortgage anymore we don't have you know our sons moved moved up and moved out you know we have a very different kind of life now so i was i was able to kind of selfishly make choices about what i wanted to do and actually i decided i just want to go go small again take a few little clients some big clients and just have a little agency and the ethos was and still is if all my clients sent me an email at nine o'clock in the morning saying help i've got a problem I don't want to have a bigger client list than would enable me to have spoken to them all by the end of the day and started to solve the problems. So for me, it's, you know, look, I'm 55 this year. I hope I'm going to be doing this for another 15 years. And uh, I just want to be, uh, I want to work with really good people. I want to work on projects that I genuinely believe I can add value to. And then I think if I can do those two things, then I can make money for authors and I can make money for myself. I think if you go in being led by the money, you end up working with working with people that you don't have a lot of respect for and you end up chasing money uh, rather than just trying to do good stuff. And I think I'm at the stage now clearly where I'm having a midlife crisis, but I, you know, le legacy is important, you know, I, I want to, I want to work on some more books that for years after I've gone and the authors have gone are still being read and have a value and add to you know add add to the sort of body of work out there that is timeless and I, you know it's a it's a it's a big ambition but I, I think I've worked I've, I've there are at least three or four books I've worked on that I think will be read for many many years to go and I think I, I want to add that number 
So it's a very, very long answer, James, to say that, you know, I've been on a bit of an odyssey and I've ended up here. Uh, it's, um, I work for myself. I have a, I have fantastic assistant, but obviously we don't sit in the same office and she's not full time. She's there when I need her. Uh, and I have partnership relationships with some great people around the world who do other things for me. Uh, and I have lovely authors. So, um, you know, I'm pretty privileged. Um, clearly, I I am making money, which is great. I need to make more. But I want to do that in a way that I feel I can look myself in the uh, look myself in the eye in the morning and uh, think I'm doing good, good stuff, really. Mm -hmm. I completely get that. I mean, one of the things that um, when I was kind of getting set up for this morning, I had another look over your, your website and your bio and so on. And one of the things and I've actually heard you say this before, but one of the things that really sticks out is that you say that you have a list of clients that you would be willing to go to the wall for. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's amazing. But I don't know if you have actually real been told this or not, or if, if anyone's ever actually mentioned it to you. I suspect they have. Um, but I, I've worked with, with some of your clients myself, um, one in particular. Um, and actually, when your name comes up in conversation, be it formally or informally, without um, exception, they smile. That's the first thing they do. Um, and that, that obviously I've worked with um, Sam Blake more so than, than anyone else but um, I have to say you're held in, in very very high regard because of your ethos um, and that, that's something that certainly yeah. I admire you for. You're going to make me cry so let's just move on. <laughs> no look I mean no, I no, think. It's not that no, 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 I mean, it's something that, that I think you should you should know better. Yeah no that is lovely and I'm a look I'm a kind of um you know, I'm a kind of middle class, privately educated, sort of um, slightly privileged guy sitting in London. And, and you know, it, it's actually, you know, you realise taking compliments is really difficult, which is why being an agent is great, because you can deflect it all to how brilliant your clients are. But I, what, what I would say is that the difficult conjuring trick, I think, as being an agent is that, you know, all all authors want to feel that they're the only client but they secretly know that they're not and I think you know as an agent you know you've got to you've got to be available for your authors when at, at the time of their most critical need but you've also they've also got to feel as is the case that when they're not ringing up you know treating you as the fourth emergency service that I'm still looking after them and looking out for them. And I think that, I think that's the balancing act and, um, you know, not being in a, not being a corporate person anymore. I do have a lot more time to actually think strategically about what I'm doing. And I think, you know, I, I know your, your increasingly successful podcast, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are aspiring writers. And I think, I think hopefully when, those authors find agents they will find somebody that they feel can be a fellow traveler and can kind of be because I think our, our role as agents is to be you know we're, we're kind of there to be a spirit guide we're kind of you know to say look as the author you should have tunnel vision which is just looking at your manuscript and all the other periphery nonsense 
as an agent, I'm there to tell you when you should look left, when you should look right, but most of the time you should just look ahead. Mm -hmm. And I say that that leads me quite neatly into into my next question because you know we've talked about the fact that that, that you've done things in the past on how to get an agent. Yes, uh, but you know, as as aspiring and emerging writers, I know I've certainly heard on my writing journey on several occasions. You know, you need to get an agent. Yeah. And I think that's advice that aspiring and emerging writers, particularly if you have, if you've finished a manuscript and you think it's you know this is it this is going to be the one yeah um, you know you you blindly follow that advice and start maybe trying to acquire an agent but i suppose yeah. what, I, what i really want to want to ask you is why do we need one um well look the the, the, the publishing world is um it's set up in a way that it's about specialists specialist people bringing something to the table and you know if you think you know you've got you end up with a book on a bookshelf on a bestseller list one hopes huge number of people behind that success from the person who's designed the cover to the agent to the author to the editor to whatever now obviously without the author none of it works but it's all about specialist people and publishing it needs quality filters if you're an editor sitting at Faber, let's say, which, you know, let's be honest, if you're a literary novelist, Faber is, an, is a publisher you've heard of, as is Penguin, and, you know, you'd love to be published by them because of the brand awareness. If, um, if Faber just read anything that came to them, they would, you know, there'd be some person with, an, with a sort of email account just, just pinging off the scale constantly and the manuscripts coming through the door. You know, and I know that this used to be the case, I don't think it's changed, that since World War II, Faber have only published two unsolicited authors. And one of those was, um, one of those was William Golding, Lord of the Flies. And I, and I can't remember what the second one was. Every other book's come by an agent. And it's because we all have relationships with publishers. If I ring, a, if I ring Bill Scott Carr at Transworld, who I've known for 25 years, um, we have a pretty good hit rate. He knows if I ring him with a manuscript, he knows it's going to be something that is of a certain quality and that we are in tune. So that is a very efficient way of Bill uh, acquiring new books. You know, the 25 agents around town who have a relationship with him, every six months, one of them rings up and goes, Bill, I think I've got something for you. Doesn't mean he's going to buy it, but he knows that it's going to get, it's going to be above a certain level. So what you need, what you're getting with an agent is you're buying into relationships, you're buying into their brand and you're buying into their ability to um, passionately sell your work on your behalf. And also, I mean, I'd say that your skills, you know, my contacts are everything. And I have to work really, really hard to stay in contact with the amazing new editors that are coming up because most of my contacts are people that I kind of, went to publishing school with if you like so they're all kind of running companies now mm -hmm. but but if i ring a certain publisher they will take my call if an unsolicited author does you won't get past you won't even get the phone number let alone past reception so you need an agent to be your spirit guide to say you know this is great it's not ready let's work on it let's work on it let's go out with it and now let's do a deal so you know we're there um it's not like, like an estate agent where, you know, I think these days you could probably sell your house yourself. 
probably but you wouldn't um you wouldn't do the legal work yourself because that would be crazy you'd be exposing yourself so to me it's you know we have skill sets we more than earn our commission i know that the 15 percent commission that everybody charges now we bring more than 15 percent of value to any deal so we are we don't cost you anything and we protect you and we are there to maximize your career as an author while you do the hard work which is sitting in a room and writing <laughs> and actually i mean i suppose in addition to that from from working with you and and sam recently i've probably got a, a bit of a peek behind the curtain um a little bit more of the relationship between an agent and their and, and one of their clients in the sense that i think what people maybe wouldn't necessarily realize i mean in addition to the 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 advice you've given or, or you know the explanation you've given um is how much an agent actually works with the writer on the manuscript before it goes to the publisher yeah i mean that's crucial i think i think back in the day i could take on something that showed you know it was a kind of rough unpolished diamond but there was clearly something at the center of it and I could kind of send it out and an editor somewhere would say, okay, yeah, we'll buy this, here's five grand. They'd go off and do all the work. And then six months later, I'd get this shining, you know, diamond through the post and think, oh, brilliant. I don't think that happens anymore. I think editors are, they kind of want stuff that is really, really near um, ready to go. They obviously, they want to do some work on it, but they haven't got the time to do, you know, deep, deep, deep edits. So actually... We have to take on the mantle of the editor. We have to do all the developmental work um, and um, get it out there in a way that somebody can go, you know what, love this. We've got a, we've got a slot in spring of 2022. Um, I think this is kind of another draft away from being there, but you know, we're good to go. And I think that's, um, because otherwise, what, what, what is a publisher doing? They're kind of lending an author money in the, ex in the hope, in the hope that, um, at some point this but this book comes to the surface and is publishable and um, publishing is a business so you know we have to do the work in advance and i would say that we have to be very careful to remember that you know i am i am running a business yeah i'm i'm the only real employee but i've got to make money to turn the, to keep the lights on what i can't do is run a creative writing school where at the end of it i've made some work a bit better i've got to take on stuff and work on it and then sell it and make money and you know sometimes i've done events and you can almost hear people kind of booing at that point you know because you know where creativity and business collides it's it's there's always a kind of there's always a tricky little area in the middle isn't there but this is a business and um i think in literary fiction our role is to create the circumstances under which an author can do anything they really want to do, as long as they're expressing their creativity in an interesting way. Um, but I think in kind of genre fiction and commercial fiction, it's a much more unforgiving um, and slightly restless area of the market. And we've got to deliver, sorry to say this, but product that is going to speak to um, what everybody wants out there. Yeah, no, I can, again, I completely get that. 
Um, I mean, yeah, as you, as you say, it, at the end of the day, it's a business. And I think yeah. most, most of us as writers, no matter where we are on our writing journey, I think ultimately we know that. Um, and despite the art of it all, and, and this, despite the fact that we want to play up the art of it all, um, ultimately we know that, that yeah, it, it comes down to, it comes down to pounds and pence at the end of the day, like I suppose almost like everything else. Yeah, it does. But I but I'd say that you know, even in you know, especially in commercial fiction, um, I I would say you know, if you are writing, uh, if you're writing crime, and you know, clearly, th this is a main area of focus for this podcast. You know, whatever you are doing, you know, if you think of the Venn diagram where you have overlapping areas right at the center of that venn diagram you are standing as an author holding your book and there has to be nothing else in that overlap you have to be doing something either better than anyone else or different uh or coming at coming at something with an oblique angle because let's be honest you know um there's a, there's a brilliant book about called seven plots by christopher booker which i'd recommend anyone reads you know, it takes the whole uh, corpus of literature and distills it into basically seven plots. And we all know that, whether it's, you know, the hero or the, you know, whatever. We, we all know um, you open a crime book and you, it's like at times, it's like getting into a nice warm bath. You, you kind of know the territory, don't you? But the successful books are those crime books that do something different. Even if it's just some tiny element that is different, uh, that's the responsibility of the author, I think. And um, yeah, in commercial fiction, it's about pounds and shillings and pence, but it's also about making a publisher feel that there's an area of the market that no one else has yet captured. Yeah. And I suppose with, with crime fiction in particular, it's probably mm. the most consumed genre. Um, so I'm guessing it's also, you know, consequently the most flooded market. Um, yeah, I mean, I think commercial women's fiction, which is a kind of, you know, catch all area, but I, you know, I think there is a, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of uh, commercial women's fiction books. There's a lot of crime, there's a lot of crime written by women, you know, yes. I, I mean, I think crime is a really, really big area. Um, but, you know, I think if I, as an agent went to market with a, you know, a procedural crime novel with a detective and a crime that had to be solved, you know, in a city, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, start with a body, end with a, an arrest. Fine. But it's within that, within that very, very over flooded genre, it's got to do something different. And, you know, if you look at, you know, if you look over the years at the, you know, the, the kind of books in those areas that have made it onto telly, let's say, um, you know, whereas it's Miss Marple. Well, what's that? What's that doing? It's different. Well, you've got, you know, Miss Marple is a kind of, you know, she's a kind of old lady version of Sherlock Holmes, isn't she? She's not within the police. So people actually respond to her in a different way. You know, she has an ability, particularly Miss Marple, to sort of be that little old lady in the corner of the room and no one quite notices, but she notices everything. So she's a great eye for the, for the reader. Um, 
you know, and that obviously makes it onto television because it's it combines kind of cozy uh, rural cliche with sort of brutal crime, but from that angle. And then you look at something like, you know, Inspector Morse, you know, Colin Dexter's creation, where, you know, that takes us into another whole area of cliche, doesn't it? The kind of troubled detective with the sort of car crash of a private life, you know, alcohol issues, da, 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 you know, and all of that, you know, and you think, well, that that's all great, but we, we kind of need to move on from that, don't we? Which is where, um, you know, where, where publishing is constantly looking now for something something that is different. And you look at the success of, I don't know, Gillian Flynn and Gone Girl or, you know, Girl on a Train or something, and they are, it's about, it's less about um, who's investigating stuff, isn't it? It's about, um, it's psychological, it's about troubled victims or perpetrators at the center of things. But as I say, they've got, they've got to do, they've got to do something different. Yeah. And I would presume then that, that that is, is one of the reasons that, that so much crime fiction seems to be very premise led and kind of high concept premise led at the moment. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but what I've noticed is that um, if you go into a bookshop and, and, and look in the crime section, you'll see on the cover, you'll see a, a premise laid out very, very well within one or two lines, um, which yes. is fantastic from a marketing point of view. Um, but one of the yeah. things I wonder about, I bought some of these and some of them really live up to the premise, but others just use quite a good premise to disguise yeah. very thinly, I have to say exactly the kind of stereotypes that you had mentioned yeah um what's your view on that what's your take on that um well i mean i think you know there's a there's been a kind of um you know books have to capture people's imagination don't they in a very crowded market and um i think you know you end up marketing a book like a film don't you so you know, some of those classic kind of ways of selling, you know, I think the pitch for Alien was Jaws in space, wasn't it, when they were pitching it? And you think, yeah, that's, that's great, that kind of works. But, you know, you've got to, you've got to sell something to a reader when they're standing there in front of 24 thrillers in Smith's or Easton's or wherever it might be, what's going to make them jump out? And um, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of kind of smoke and mirrors going on. And I think that's quite short term because I think if you, you know, you can get a book into a bestseller list for a week by pumping huge numbers of copies out and putting something on the front, like, you know, as, as good as John le Carre or your money back. But if, if those 5,000 people who buy it in week one don't love it and start talking about it, the book just disappears. I mean, real success is built on word of mouth and word of mouth comes from people buying into a premise um, thinking that the book lives up to that and then telling their friends about it. Um, you know, look, we're in a, we're in a world where obviously everybody is a reviewer. Everybody is blogging, tweeting, going on Facebook. And if something's no good, it's amazing how quickly, you know, it becomes the emperor's new clothes, doesn't it? Oh, I read that. Didn't like it. And the best, the best book club is are your friends, you know. And if your friends say, "Hey, James, you know, you really loved, 
you know, you really loved that last year. For that reason, I think you were going to really enjoy this. You take them seriously, don't you? You do. That's right. You do. Yeah. Um, from that, kind of going on from that a little bit, um, okay. I'm thinking about what we're possibly inadvertently talking about is publishing trends. Um, and I wanted to find out, you know, we talk in, in writing circles, we talk about, you know, publishing trends. And um, I sometimes suspect that we don't actually really know that much about it. Um, so could you give us a, a bit of an insight in, into, first of all, are there publishing trends or is it just a kind of a, a cyclical thing? Um, and if so, I mean, what, where are we in publishing at the moment? Okay. Uh two very good questions um obviously i'm now um i'm doing that politician thing i'm repeating the question back to you giving myself time to rapidly come <laughs> up with a really brilliant answer so so i i'm really glad you asked me that james but what i'd like to say about that is this no i mean but, but you know joking apart i would say um i think that tr there are trends of course there are and they tend to be they tend to be set by one book that makes a big success. And I think when Gone Girl came along, suddenly, you know, the, a year later, there were a lot of books that had, I mean, joking apart, had girl in the title. Let's, uh, you know, you have those kind of title kind of trends where people try and um, do that subliminal thing of you enjoyed Gone Girl. Uh, yeah, in fact, when Transworld was sending out advanced reading copies of um, Girl on a Train, the the strap line from the publisher said, where is the girl gone? She's on the train. You know, so they were actually making a kind of, um, making a, you know, making a kind of connection there, saying if you enjoyed that, you'll enjoy this. I, I would say, you know, you look back in, you know, you look back historically when um, Bridget Jones's diary was a huge success, suddenly there were, you know, that, that spawned an entire kind of uh, generation of writers who were writing kind of damaged girls looking for Mr. Right, which of course, you know, Bridget Jones was basically Jane Austen, but set in 1990s London, you know, so trends come and go. I think right now we are, the trend that we are about to experience is it's, um, in fact, Sam Blake told me this title and I was like, really? It's called Uplit, which means uplifting literature, up, uplifting commercial fiction, books that don't, that make us feel slightly more um, optimistic about the world we're living in, because let's be honest, we are living in a dystopia. We're living in a world that a year ago, well, 14 months ago, if we described, people would have... Um, asked us what kind of uh, what kind of drugs we were smoking i mean we are in a we are in a terrible weird world right now so we we want escapist literature and i think that's going to appeal to, uh, that's going to appeal across across all genres really and i think that's particularly challenging for crime and thrillers mm -hmm. you know we're we're also we are also in a world i think unfortunately where there are there is a lot of focus about um about gender, uh, I mean, I'm not. It's a very good thing people are focusing on it. But what I'm saying is, it's, it's a shame that we need to. But we know we are in a world in post um, post the Harvey Weinstein situation, where you know he was obviously sent to prison for a long time. The whole Me Too situation, 
Um, we're looking at, uh, in London, the very high profile um, murder of a woman called Sarah Everard, uh, where her accuser, where the person who's been accused and been charged as a, was a serving policeman. You know, we're, we're in a really, really challenging, difficult time, I think, where, you know, if I was a woman reading crime and thriller, you know, I, I would want to feel that it wasn't always about female victims, which I think a lot of crime tends to be, and it wasn't always about, um, you know, it wasn't always about dark, difficult uh, situations. Uh, so I, I think I think we are going to see uh, we're going to see a lot of books which are going to try and uh, make us feel happy to be alive, excited to be alive, and that there is probably you know look clearly we are going to have lots of crime and we're going to have lots and lots of thrillers, but you know I I think we're going to want to feel that maybe um, by the end of the book good has triumphed in a in an unambiguous way. I think that's important. Um, I think another trend is probably we, we may see more standalone books rather than um, series books. Uh, I think publishing is nervous at the moment about launching a new series because if the first book doesn't work, they're, they're kind of, they've got egg on face for books two and three of a projected trilogy. So I think we're going to be looking for standalones. I think it's not necessarily a new trend, but we are definitely going to need, um, we are going to need to have um, a big hook for a book. And we've, you've touched on this, you know, you, you are going to think you're going to want a book title and jacket blurb that kind of poses a question that you as a reader are intrigued to find out um, how this is going to be resolved. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm a great fan of some of the sort of classic golden age of British crime. And I, you know, you look back at something like Agatha Christie and, um, and then there were none, you know, which is a, which is a book, which um, a whole load of people are lured to a slightly remote island off the coast of the UK. Uh, at the end of, at the end of the book, they are all dead. And um, the island is cut off. Uh, and Agatha Christie started with the premise of what if police arrive on an island and there are, I think it's 10 dead bodies and there is no way on or off the island. So what has happened? And she kind of retro engineered that. She almost set herself the challenge of being the policeman and how could this possibly be a thing? And I think that's a really interesting, um, that's a really interesting premise, isn't it? And as a reader, you want to know how that could possibly work. So I, you know, I think we are, uh, so high concept, uh, standalone books, uh, things that are slightly make us feel that um, there, is, there is light at the end of the tunnel and that hopefully the light at the end of the tunnel isn't the oncoming train, <laughs> whether there's a girl on it or not. <laughs> um. I'll, I'll ask you about COVID and so on in a moment, but before that, I mean, you know, while we're on the, the, the subject of uh, of trends and, and I suppose, topical trends, I mean, obviously in terms of the news and so on, um, yep. what I often wondered is, yes, writing is probably quite close to the trends in terms of um, timeline, 
But obviously, with the route to market and route to publishing, does that mean essentially that if someone was writing about a particular, you know, news topic at the moment, that by the time it's published, that's no longer going to be relevant? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think you can't. Um, I mean, obviously, look, you know, you can if something happens in the news, you know, you're, you're a fast study, you can write a short story about it and post it tomorrow, today, whatever. That's great. But I mean, publishing, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit like having a baby. I mean, from delivering a book to being published, you know, you need a good nine months for, uh, you know, look, the world doesn't need another novel and the publisher and the agent and definitely the author's job is to make us all feel that our life is in some way incomplete without it. So what a publisher's got to do is raise awareness and expectation for something that people don't know they want. And to do that takes time. So you... I think if you follow trends, let alone following the news, the danger is, you know, you, I'll give, I'll give you, give you an example here. Years and years ago, I got a thriller through from someone. It was, wasn't very good. Uh, it felt, I, I don't know, I just, it didn't really speak to me. So I kind of wrote back and said, thank you, but not for me. And I got this, um, which I kept it actually, I got this letter back from this guy saying, well, you're, you're wrong. You know, and I was like, I was thinking, well, I'm not wrong. It's my opinion. You know, I may be wrong in the wider context, but I don't think this is a book that I think is any good. And he said, well, look, I, I analyze the top, top 20 best-selling books in this genre over the last five years. And I, um, analyze them and I created a chart for each one and I laid down on the chart so when there was a sex scene or a cliffhanger or a you know a new character introduced and I and I lay this all on a graph and then I created a mean average of the top 20 best-selling books so I've created this he didn't call it that we call it now an algorithm which meant that and my I can tell you my book absolutely uh, follows that algorithm so you're wrong this is a best this is a best-selling book you just need to send it out to publishers and um, you know quite clearly you know you've got to admire his energy into this but you know what what I was faced with there was was someone kind of doing karaoke in a pub singing an Adele song and thinking therefore they were Adele they weren't he wasn't at all and I think if you follow trends, you're going to be late to the party, and and you know the mix my metaphors. The, the the circus will have left town at that point. So I think it's a it's a difficult one. This because on one level, it's good to be aware of what is selling and what isn't selling, but you've kind of just got to do what you want to. You've got to do what you know you can do, and you could think you can do better than anyone else because you've got. Um, I mean, I can tell you right now. You know, historical fiction, I think, is really difficult. So if somebody sent me, you know, um, a detective story set at the kind of court of, you know, I don't know, Louis the Fourteenth, I would say, and it's a commercial book, I think this is going to be pretty difficult. Just my gut feeling. I, I don't see a lot of that out there. I'm not aware of publishers about to launch a whole load of that kind of thing. Uh, in the same way that, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, there was sort of three years of a boost for kind of erotic fiction. Beyond that, I think there's enough out there now. If people want to read it, we don't need to create any more. So, you know, I think we're, you know, don't 
don't don't look at the bestseller list and think, oh, John Grisham, yeah, I'm going to go and write a legal thriller because he's successful. I don't think that necessarily means the genre is asking for more. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know from a writer's point of view, I mean, I, I doubt that there would be many writers who would want to, you know, to follow that trend. I mean, obviously there are some, you've, you've used an example. I think most of us obviously write the story that we want to hear and, and the story we want to tell. But the reason I brought it up was because often we're obviously influenced by the world around us. We can't help that. Yeah. Um, and often that does creep into writing. And what I would be kind of, well, as I say, the reason I ask what I would be kind of worry about is the fact that you might want to write about something, but then think, well, actually, no, does that look like I'm trying to follow the news trend or is it, you know, am I trying to cash in? Um, and that's why I kind of wanted to make the point that, you know, if you, from my point of view, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, from my point of view, if you feel that it needs to be written, you write it um, and then you worry about the market later rather yeah. than, you know, than, than looking at trends. Um, yes. and I just thought that, you know, the whole thing, when we were talking about publishing trends, I thought, you know, I don't want people to think that, that that's what writers do. And I know certainly within the, the publishing world, I know that's not the case, um, that, that we sit down and think, okay, so how, you know, it's not about making money essentially. Yes, we'd love to make um, lots and lots of money. Yeah. Um, and that's why we, we hopefully work with people like yourselves. But but ultimately, it's about the story, I suppose, is one of them. It is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But you've got to be, you've got to be, um, you know, as I say, if if you're writing a, you know, detective story set in Birmingham and there's a, you know, a DI and a body, you know, and it's following the clues and at the end of it, there's an arrest, you've got to think, you know, is is this worth my while spending, you know, a year, 18 months of my time writing it when the the likelihood of it getting published is is pretty slim because it's not doing anything different. And I think at that point, it is worth looking at the market, isn't it? And just thinking, you know, maybe actually, maybe I could flip that and tell the story from the perspective of the person who's perpetrating the crimes, not the detective. Or maybe I can tell it from, you know, and I think there are ways of flipping things and making them immediately more compelling for a market. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, one thing I when I was thinking about the, um, it, you know, coming to interview you today, one of the things I was thinking about was obviously as an agent, you will be reading lots um, and you obviously have your own personal tastes and really, you know, you like to read. Um, what I wondered was, does that influence, albeit, you know, unintendedly, um, does that influence the kind of books that you ultimately, you know, represent afterward? Yeah, that, that, James, that's a great, that is a great question, actually. And it's not one I'm asked very often. So thanks for that. I, I would say, um, yes, and it's a good thing. I mean, I didn't, I didn't grow up reading science fiction or science fantasy. And frankly, I'm, not, I'm still not quite sure the difference between the two, which says a lot. But I know there were guys in the playground when I was at school, you know, who would huddle in a corner, be talking about The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or Michael Moorcock, whoever they'd discovered. And I think if I got sent, you know, if somebody 
typed out a very, very famous science fiction novel and sent it to me and put their name on the front. For so I wouldn't be able to tell you that it wasn't written by them. I wouldn't be able to tell you whether something was good. I mean, I, I could read something, think, oh, this is well written, but I wouldn't know where it sat within uh, within the kind of uh, opus. Uh, so, yeah, no, it absolutely does. Because I think as an agent, you know, you... I mean, look, I, I think I've spent... I spent a little bit too long of my career through circumstance of being a kind of committed generalist and doing a bit of this and a bit of that. And actually, I think you look at the really, really successful agents around town and a lot of them just do one thing. They just do children's books or they just do crime or they just do popular, you know, pop science. And actually the great thing about specializing is, you know, your market. And I know, I know, I probably know what I'm not good at. And I kind of know by default what I'm good at. And I, Look, if I if I take on a children's book and ring up a bunch of children's publishers, they kind of maybe know my name, but they don't know me or my. I don't have a reputation in that market. So, why am I doing a good thing for my author, really? So yeah, I mean, I think that your your own look first and foremost. You know, there isn't an agent school. The school of being an agent is just doing the job for many years and kind of developing a sense of taste. And I think you've just got to read and read and read like stuff and then think oh this is a good this is good in that genre i'll give it a go you know i mean it's not it's not rocket science it really isn't anyone who tells you it is um i wouldn't i wouldn't listen to them for very long mm. and a, another thing i was thinking about on a, on a kind of an unrelated note i feel like um obviously you know that part of my professional life involves teaching english to to post-primary students um yeah. I never thought, and you know, I talk a lot about the the idea of, of the strange places your writing journey takes you. Yeah. I never thought that I would be chatting to John Boyne's agent when I was standing in a classroom teaching the boy in the striped pajamas. Hmm. Um, and that got me thinking this morning that there must be a certain weight of responsibility of representing someone with such a um i don't want to say big name but such a big talent i suppose you know what what is it like to to, to yeah I mean, it's good that. well i mean i you know i kind of grew up me and john are, i think i'm five years older than him we've kind of grown up together i've known john since he was a sort of 25 year old bookseller or 28 year old bookseller working in waterstones and he wrote his debut novel, Thief of Time, which I read and really enjoyed. I spent a long time trying to find a publisher for it. And, um, you know, we, we've had some great times. We've had some really challenging times because, you know, his publisher left after the first book and then the second, you know, then he was kind of orphaned a bit. And then, then he had a bit of time in the wilderness and then he came back with Crippin and then one day he rang me and he said, oh, I've written a children's book. And I must admit, I thought, okay, well, I don't really know anything about children's books. Uh, and I read that and, it, you know, and it was, and that was Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And look, we've been, we've been on an amazing journey together. And his, what I, what I love about John is, you know, he's a wonderfully complex person. He's a wonderfully complex writer. And, you know, when uh, Hearts Invisible Furies came along, which has got 
in fact back in the bestseller list this year um you know i i thought god i'm i'm laughing so much i've never laughed so much at a john boyne book and i knew you know because i know him very well he's got a great sense of humor we spend a lot of our time just sort of crying with laughter but i'd never really seen that on the page until hearts invisible furies and his new novel the echo chamber which comes out later on this year is just an absolutely wonderful wonderful uh, satirical look at sort of social media and the world we're in wow. and you know and i think the great thing about john is he never stops he never stops surprising me yes he's had a huge huge success he's published in 55 languages but you know he's still a working writer and we still have all the challenges that you know we that you have with anyone and it's not uh, i i think the good thing the important thing as a writer, no matter how much success you have, is don't rest on your laurels and keep pushing yourself. Because in a way, you know, I mean, you know, look at the most successful writer in the world, look at JK Rowling. You know, she clearly decided she wanted to get into your genre and write crime fiction. But she decided not to do it under the name of JK Rowling because there was too much baggage involved in that. So she went off and, you know, her agent sold her book, Robert Galbraith book, nobody as far as i know knew that she was jk rowling you know that was that was quite an interesting thing to do but you know look she's had a very she's had a very um interesting year hasn't she not to get into too much hot water yes, but I mean, exactly and you know it's not um you know i think success has its own sets of challenges i think what success does do though in terms of you know, clearly it gives people financial security and it enables an author to kind of write, go back to writing what they want to write rather than writing what they feel they have to write. So, yeah, I mean, I, John is, a, you know, John Boyne and Andrew Miller have followed me, you know, on my little odyssey and that's been amazing. Uh, and, um, you know they they've had lots of success and I, but my job is i want them to have even more success than they've had you know so you know i think as an agent and as a publisher if you start treating your authors like um they're some sort of godlike figures i think that's a mistake you know they are they're they're complex human beings who need you to you know all of my authors expect me to be really really honest and straightforward with them and um you know, if one of them, and I'm not talking about any specific author now, comes up with a book that you just think, eh, my job is to tell them that and just to be honest and constructive and have a plan. So, you know, you, 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 if you put your authors on a pedestal, I think that's a, that's a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Certainly I can see from your point of view, but I did wonder that, you know, as I say, it, it must be from, again, from your point of view, such a responsibility, but actually you know, in, in listening to your response there, actually, regardless of who the author is, you would have that responsibility for all your clients anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, look, you know, it's about, um, you know, things go well and things go badly. And I think, you know, Striped Pajamas is a great, you know, that book has taken me all over the world into some amazing places and it's taken John, you know, everywhere. And I think, but what's been interesting about that it starts as a book. Um, we had a film. We had a John work with Oliver Jeffers on a kind of 
you know, almost a sort of graphic, you know, a much more illustrated edition of the book. We then had um, Northern Ballet did a amazing ballet, which I went with John to the premiere of that. That was astonishing. Uh, there's been talk of an opera. Um, there's, you know, that there are, I'm sure there are more iterations of that book yet to come. And that, you know, that's, that's a good example of the agent's job. It's not just about selling the original book to one publisher and sitting back and going, aren't we all brilliant? It's about what, what other ways are there of getting this story to, um, to as wide a readership as possible with, with credibility, you know? And I think whatever John does, he has utter credibility and, you know, you know, I think he, I think that book, and I think at least two of two of his other books will be read, you know, for many, many, many years to come. And I think, you know, that's what I was talking at the beginning of this about kind of legacy and things that you know you want to feel as an agent that, um, you know, you want you want your authors to be to be read. And I think, you know, on the on the crime front, you know, I'm, you know, I think Sam Blake has had a lot of success, but I, I think we are. You know, it's the tip of the iceberg of Sam Blake's potential as an author. And my job is to get that. her there. And I think wonderful Bradford-based crime writer, A.A. Uh, a. Dand, who I've been working with since the beginning. He can't go into any details now, but, you know, the next five years for him, it's going to be off the scale. So, you know, my job as an agent is just to keep pushing it. And I think, look, we all, we all want to read crime. We want to read thrillers. You know, I think anyone out there writing in the in that genre, good on you because you're you're right where the money is, but you've got to do something that is going to raise the bar and make us all look at that genre in a in a in a slightly different way. You know, the world the world is constantly moving on, and I think fiction needs to it needs to evolve. Yeah, and actually, you have. I know that obviously we're, we're kind of coming close to time now and I know that you will have somewhere to be quite soon. Um, but you've, you've kind of led me into to one of the, the other things that I wanted to ask you about um, and that is I am an admirer of Sam's work um, and I have worked with her, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an admirer of her writing, I should say. Um, but I've also become an admirer of her work through working with her, doing workshops and, and um, various interviews and events and so on. Um, and she is very, very proactive um, on being out there and, and doing things to help other authors, but also to, to, to raise the profile of her work. Um, and to me, that's something that that, that is definitely part of the role of a writer um but I, I what i really wanted to ask you about was you've obviously been involved in quite a bit of that as well with sam um in winning the writing game the the, the facebook live um friday afternoon yeah yep. um, broadcast if you like so couldn't you tell us a wee bit about that and and some of the reasoning behind it yeah i mean look we're a year ago um you know, we were just talking about it would be, it would be a really good opportunity to try and do something regularly. And, you know, we enjoy working together. So we started by doing, Sam interviewed me for sort of, I don't know, seven or eight uh, hours over, you know, one hour a week about 
getting an agent, getting published and all of that. And that was brilliant. And at the end of it, we were like, you know what, we, we enjoy doing this. Let's let's now go and talk to some best-selling authors and authors starting out about their journey to uh, from creativity to getting published. So that sort of morphed into um, winning the writing game from big idea to bestseller. And we've, you know, we've had an absolute blast and we've interviewed, you know, we've interviewed everybody from, you know, Owen Colfer to Stephen Hall to Adele Parks, Joanne Harris, Sophie Hanna, you know, I mean, I think we think we're about 20, 28 hours into this now. And we've kind of, we've kind of moved back a little bit to, we're, we're doing it kind of once a month now on sort of first Friday, just because I think the rhythms have changed and people are, you know, getting back to kind of traditional work. So today we're, um, we're interviewing Maxine Mei-Fung Chung, whose uh, debut novel, The Eighth Girl, was um, has been a huge success. And, um, you know, I think that's going to be interesting um, because she is by trade, um, you know, she's a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. So she lectures on trauma, gender and sexuality. Uh, and so she does a lot of that. I mean, she was also a creative director for 10 years at Condé Nast. So, you know, she's bringing to fiction a huge amount of influence and um, experience. And I think that's what we're really interested in this kind of um, little chat show is just, you know, it's, it's life experiences that make authors. And I think it's just interesting to um, look at that. And uh, we kind of alternate. So Sam's actually doing the interviewing. I'm just topping and tailing. But I know, I know this week it's going to be very much about, you know, the minutiae of creativity and, you know, sitting down that blank piece of paper or the flashing cursor and how do you start a book? What's your process? And I think, you know, process is everything. And I think over the last, you know, months, you know, someone like Sophie Hanna plots a book to within an inch of its life and then the characters just do what she tells them to do. Whereas other writers create character and then see where they take them. So, you know, I, I don't know where we're going to go with this. I suspect my, my bet is that as a psychotherapist, her fiction is going to be very much led by character. But let's see. Sounds like a, a good one, and they have been. I, I try to dip in and out of them as much mm. as I can, and and uh, I should probably say to our readers because or, sorry, our, our readers, our listeners, um, that depending on when we we are this episode, um, obviously the that particular um episode of of winning the writing game may have already um been broadcast. But they are all available um, via yeah. the, the writing.ie site. Yeah. So I would, I would certainly encourage you to go back there. They're all on YouTube and on on the writing.ie Facebook page. Yeah, they're all available now as a, as a great resource. And the, and yeah, I would completely concur that they are a great resource. I mean, um, I've certainly gone back on on several several of them. Um, before I let you go and, and get prepared, Simon, um, there is just one final thing that I wanted to ask you about and it has nothing to do with being an agent or, you know, nothing to do with with what we formally are kind of meeting to, to talk about today. Um, I'm really interested in your side project um, in terms of the, the printing press and so on. So yeah. 
Um, I suspect if anyone's seen, if anyone kind of follows you on Facebook and Twitter and so on, um, they will have seen some of the work that you've been doing. So um, do you want to maybe tell us a wee bit about it? Yeah. Um, so ink, ink is very much in my blood. My dad was a print journalist at the Times. And I, when I was a when I was fairly young, he took me in to see them printing the paper. So I went into this massively kind of huge kind of warehouse cavern of noise and you know cacophony of sounds and ink and paper. And at the end of which there was this sort of beautiful, clean, sort of beautifully written sort of um, object. And I think that kind of stayed with me. So I, I've always been someone who's had a lot of creativity inside me in terms of um, artistic creativity, but I don't, Unlike my wife, who's a very talented artist, I don't have the kind of motor skills to paint or draw in a way that looks anything other like other than a sort of seven-year-old child. Really, I, I don't have those skills, but um, I've always had a kind of need to express that creativity. So I think when um, you know, so graphics have always been very interesting to me. And then I and I just because um, my wife is a sort of art she prints at the end of our garden in her studio but she's a, you know she uses an etching press and things so i just i just sort of got i was sort of watching her and i was thinking well you know maybe the solution for me is to sort of look into printing because on one level you know kind of letterpress printing it's about it's about taking pre-existing kind of blocks of illustration or letters and locking them up and, and applying ink to them. So on, on one level, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of solution to an outlet of my creativity. So anyway, I went on a little course and bought myself a little um, 1950s kind of tabletop press called Nadana, which you would have seen in, you know, you would have seen in every kind of school office or parish, you know, newsletter or whatever. And it was a, you know, really beautiful little machine that prints beautifully actually uh, very very efficiently and fast so I bought one of those went on a course and then as is the way I got utterly obsessed and now three years later I've got a I've got a print studio in South London which has about a dozen uh, vintage printing presses in the oldest one is uh, called Gloria and was built in Nottingham in 1884 weighs about three quarters of a ton and is an, is an astonishing thing. It's a bit like driving a kind of steam engine when you're on it. Well, it's all, all my presses are hand or foot operated. There's no electricity involved. Uh, and I've got an amazing archive of um, type and whatever. And we, um, yeah, we were kind of uh, chosen as one of the kind of top 10 letterpress studios in Europe last year. We make, um, you know, we do commissions, we sell our work through um, the Instagram feed at the Garage Press and our Shopify site, and we've done projects with Penguin and various other things. So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lovely thing. But for me, it's a, it's a, it's another way of just having a connection between um, art and commerce. But you know, ultimately, there's there's a real joy to it, because when when people come and visit, and you know, if anyone is interested in coming and visit, you know, when when we're allowed to do that thing, you're very welcome. Uh, there's just a real joy of just someone pulling a lever and then out pops, a, you know, a piece of paper with some ink on that's something that you've created. And there's a there's a kind of childlike joy, and people are just like, God, did did I do that? You know. And to me, 
it's it's a it's a it's a lovely way and it's a great way of letting off steam as well and um certainly over the easter bank holiday weekend i'm going to be experimenting with um i've just i've just got some glow in the dark powder which i gather if i apply to some wet ink and then burnish it i'm going to be able to print things which um only come alive after dark so that, oh. you know that that's a that's a crime novel for you i think isn't it? <laughs> But yeah, no, thank you for asking about the garage press. But it's a real, um, it's a, it's a, it's an utter joy. Uh, I, I just wish everything was a bit lighter. You know, my wife said, "Why couldn't you have taken up needlework?" But there we go. Well, I have to say, I've seen some of the stuff that you produce, um, and I love it. And I, I really, there's a, a set of notebooks that I haven't got round to ordering yet, but I definitely will do. Um, and I would good. Well, we can do you a deal. Yeah, do you a good price. <laughs> um, and I would certainly urge our listeners to go in and check out your socials and your Instagram and so on. Thank you very much. So, Simon, obviously time's gone against us, and I know you're a busy man. So it's only for me to say now, thank you very, very much. I really enjoyed the conversation with you today, um, as you. always. Um, and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you for taking part today. Been a real pleasure, James. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, keep writing right, right from the heart. And I hope you will find a market. Brilliant. Thanks, Simon. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.